They're looking to get close side of Font. Lafondra away from Davis. 3-1 running. Three points running. Hello and welcome to an Elm Park Royals podcast. It hasn't even really got a name yet. I think it's a monthly roundup edition. Um, we'll probably be doing these in the international breaks over the course of the season. And it's just a bit of a catch-all for the stuff that we haven't talked about. And also it lets us uh, go back over you know, the whole month of football rather than taking it match by match. Uh, I am joined today by Jordan Cottle. How are you, Jordan? I'm good, thank you. And a man who feels like he should be anonymous, it's Jack Stanley, also known as another football analyst. How are you, Jack? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Afternoon, Tim. Yeah, you're going to be unmasked here, Jack. So I hope that you're ready for, you know, all, everyone to come straight at you with their uh, their dodgy Reading opinions. The big reveal, this is what it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I thought what we'd do is just, uh, you know, talk through things... Uh, from a more tactical point of view, now that we've had, you know, now the feelings have have slowly descended. Although having said that, Huddersfield still hurts, but let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. Um, yeah, so where do you guys want to start? Should we start with uh, the squad overall, Jordan? How, how are you feeling now the transfer window's closed? How are you feeling about it? Um, well, mixed, i got to say. Um, I think that we've done enough oh, have we done enough we've done the number of signings i thought we would make i always thought we'd get five or six and we got six and we were talking about seven um so i think from a, a purely numbers point of view it it's good to get bodies in the building we needed that you know you could tell from just the subs benches throughout the the start of the season we needed bodies um and i think that the guys we've got have generally been in the positions I would have liked. Maybe I wouldn't have gone for two centre mids, but you know it, it's okay. Um, but I think my my overarching feelings about about the signings really is just they they seem to pose a lot more questions than, than they answer. Now we've been pretty hamstrung, self hamstrung by the the, the situation at the club, um, but it feels like all of the business we've done comes with huge potential, right? We've got Premier League winners. We've got guys who've had Champions League experience and hundreds of Premier League appearances. Um, we've got a guy who was at Barcelona, a former football manager, wonder kid. You know what I mean? Like the potential is is huge, but the, the gap between how good it could be and how bad it might be seems massive because they all come with, big questions around injuries, around fitness, around can they still play at the level they need to. Um, so I want to be optimistic about how good it could be, but I'm, I'm definitely worried that um, they, they might not be what we need. Yeah, Jack, I mean, are, are you with Jordan? Like, there, Have we signed players in the right position, number one, which I feel like we probably have on the whole? Uh, and number two... Are they the right players to have brought in? Yeah, I think in terms of the positions, the the, the main the main asks was to get a left back, which eventually we did, um, and to provide some cover in the midfield, which I think we've managed to do. Obviously, there was a lot of chat as well with Zhao getting injured that we need a new striker, and we haven't um, managed to do that. But I don't think that was as, or at least not at the start of the transfer window, as pressing as some of the other gaps. Um, it does, I think, feel very... 
2018-19 Jose Gomez era, um, although a little bit more self-inflicted in terms of getting players in very late in the window, which means that the pre-season that's happened has very little bearing on the future um, of the squad. I know after the Huddersfield game, Panovic made some reference to that about getting players in now and essentially having to start pre-season a bit all over again. Um, and I would hope that he would get a bit more time than Gomez did after that particular um, start to the season to, to uh, bleed the new squad in. Um, I think, as Jordan mentions, it's quite a bit of a gamble, particularly, I think, with Dan and Drinkwater, um, as they've not played half a season's worth of league fixtures between them for the the last five years or so. We're sort of saying, are people that were very good five seasons ago going to continue to be of a sufficiently good level um, to play at championship football um, on a regular basis, if that's what they're going to be used for? Um, I think that's one of the big questions that is sort of faced is, does Dan coming in mean more and Morrison get less game time? Does it indicate a change of system? And similarly with Drinkwater and the, the double pivot. Yeah, because those two uh, signs specifically, Scott Dan is, he feels very much like Michael Morrison. I'm not sure I'd want to play them both together, Jordan. And then uh, Danny Drinkwater, I don't think that he's the same profile as Laurent and Rino. So are we expecting to see, as Jack kind of mentioned, some tactical changes or, or are these just players to sit on the bench for a season? Christ, I hope not. Um, I think um, one of the the things I'm more positive about is um, at least what we have with the signings we've brought in is some variety, which was one of my big problems about the, the squad in general last year. I think it's it's too early, certainly, to say whether this squad is significantly weaker or not than the last season. The, the the guys we've missed are big misses, obviously, particularly like Richards and, and Elise, obviously. Um, we also have the, the injuries that are going to cause havoc for the next three months as well, which is obviously really difficult. But once everybody's fit, it's a big ask, but if, if everybody's fit and even running up to them, I think the squad has a bit more variety than we saw last season, which in my mind at least, is, is part of the reason why we came a bit unstuck last year, was we only really had a pretty narrow set of, of, of like skills um, and strengths within the squad. And whereas like there are big question marks about a lot of the guys we brought in, they bring different things that we maybe didn't have last year. You know, no, Danny Drinkwater probably isn't going to give you what Josh Lawrence gives you, right? But we don't really want that. <laughs> like, I don't necessarily want just like like for like replacements with these guys, particularly because those two guys played like every minute last season. So I don't desperately want them to go do it again, but, you know, we want different ways of playing. And if Danny Drinkwater can give you that, if Junior Hoyler can give you that, big hopes that he can, um, can, can provide you different threats, different ways of playing, then I think that has to be, has to be a positive. Yeah. Yeah, my one question really is, do we have enough players to play a Mete-like role um, in the squad that is currently fit? Because I think Femi Aziz was doing a really good job at, at that, and now he's out. Um, Halilovic doesn't really feel like he does that. Um, Junior Hoyler 
uh, it feels like he picks up the ball deeper. It doesn't feel like he is going to be the one breaking the line to run beyond him. But e- equally, I'm basing this off almost nothing. I'll, I'll be straight up. Uh, this is meant to be a more tactical chat, but I'm basing it off vibes. So um, one question I do have for you, Jack, is um, you've mentioned him already, George Puskas. He was uh, pretty integral in uh, Jose Gomez losing his job. <laughs> Do we think he's going to be integral in Pauno keeping his? I mean, has he has he shown enough in the last couple of games for you to be more more confident in in him being our lead striker? I think it's pretty tricky to have a conversation about Pushkas without also having the conversation about Paunovic at the same time. I think if there's one criticism we can have of Paunovic, it's whether he really adapts the system to the players that are available to him. Um, and I think continuing to play Pushkat in a system that is set up for Lucas Shao is not one that is going to be successful. And if Pushkat isn't successful in that, then I don't think Paunovic will be. And I don't think that he can really blame George Pushkas for playing not particularly well in a system that doesn't suit him. Um, that said, I think in the last two games against Coventry and Huddersfield, which were generally from one to, well, I guess 47, um, pretty poor uh, performances from the squad. Um, I do think Pushkas had some of his brighter moments uh, in A1 at the top, um, trying to hold the ball up or make some runs in behind um, sort of formation. Um, But I think he is going to be quite integral um, from what we've seen of Jamari Clark. I don't think there's an awful lot there to suggest that he is yet at the the level um, to play um, competitively in the championship. But I don't think that that means that he won't at some point later on in the season. Um, I think with the likes of one, one of the things I was quite pleased to see against Huddersfield was the likes of Hoylett um, providing a bit more width down that left-hand side. Um, there are a couple of instances in the first half where he managed to get in behind the defence. And I think with a bit better decision-making, could link up quite nicely with Pushkas uh, when he gets into those positions, um, which could offer a little bit more service moving forward. Um, but I think it's it's tricky to see a way in which Paunovic retains, well, gets the results that he wants um, in order to retain the position that he has. Um, so I think he is definitely going to be under some pressure with that if he continues to play Pushkas in a, a Zhao-like system, um, which he just is not suited to do. And that's not necessarily the fault of the, the striker. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned um, a Meite-like player. As you say, Puskas is not Zhao, and he does make those runs. Um, and open space between the lines, which it feels like someone could exploit. Um, I'm just not sure that we've got there just yet. Um, Jordan, uh, what, what are you... I, like? Presumably, Puskas is going to start every game between now and the time that Zhao comes back. Are we going to change system? Like the, the other one slight thing before you come in on that is I do feel like people are basing Pushkas' ability to play in like a, as a lone striker still on how he played under Bowen, which I do not think is necessarily that relevant to Paunovic. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that for sure. I think... Um, I, I, I think if we play... Pushkas for the next three months straight until Jao is fit. I think he'll probably get eight goals, something like that. Um, I think if we want to be a good team, we probably need to tweak some things a little bit and play more to his strengths. But but to be honest, I, I still think 
if we play the way we're playing and he plays every minute through until January, it's probably still going to get eight goals. Um, is that enough? I don't know. We need goals coming from elsewhere if that's the case, but I, I think he will, I think he will still get goals. Um, I think the point about do we adapt, how do we change and stuff like that? Um, how do we get guys closer to him? Um, is, is an interesting one. Um, I think one thing we've seen an awful lot this season is, is, you know, John Swift's having a brilliant season, but it seems like more and more he's, he's having to drop really, really deep to pick up the ball and stuff like that. Um, and I think the signings, uh, the signings are now, you know, this two week break to work on things are going to be really, really interesting to see what effect that has on, on the double pivot. That's a piece that um, has really interested me throughout Pano's reign because it's sort of changed as we've gone and, and, and tweaked. You know, when he first came in, and I don't want to talk too much about like that that brilliant start, but like one of the interesting pieces around that was like how simple both their roles were, right? They really kind of worked kind of in a pair. They took it in turns picking up the ball from the defence or not and moving away a little bit. But by and large, in possession, they sat there in front of the defence and were that screen. And as the season went on, and as we tried to develop into being a better attacking team, because we know that we weren't a very good attacking team at that start, um, you know, one of the, how I saw that, that role and that relationship change was more and more on the ball work was, was given to Laurent. He was typically the guy picking the ball up from the centre-backs he was drifting out to that left-back spot less as he was more in charge of being the first pass out. And we saw this interesting tactic, and it, it coincided a lot with when John Swift first came back, of Rinomoto doing an awful lot of running off the ball to create space. Um, and at the time, I was interested, and I was I was keen to see how it would, how it would work. Um, I don't think it was unanimously successful because... One, we don't really play the ball to him that much. And two, I'm not sure I'm desperate to see him get the ball on the end of a lot of these runs because, bless him, I love Andy Rinomota, but he's he's got quite a narrow skill set again. Um, and we saw that again at the start of this season. Rinomota basically spends no time sitting in front of the defence anymore. He's always running off it. And even the, the last game, the Coventry game, we saw both of the pivots basically not in front of defence. Swift would come back, Hoyler would come, out, come back to pick up the ball and both of them would be, be on the ball. And you're trying to generate, you're trying to bring the ball from defence to attack. And the best way we ever doing that at the moment, it seems, is, is John Swift being that passer, being the person who takes it from A to B. Um, and to do that, you need somebody else further forward than John Swift because otherwise nobody's there. Um, but it just feels like the trade-off is suddenly whenever we lose the ball, there is nobody protecting the, the back line whatsoever. Whereas before, in my mind, like the best we've done under Pana is when there's been two guys there just like hitting anybody who tries to get in front of that defence. So um, I'm super interested to see what the Sony of Dreamwater does because he can't do some of the things we've just talked about, but he can maybe do other things. Um, and, you know, who loses their spot will be super interesting. Is it Rinomota? Is it Laurent? You know, I'm, I don't think we'll see it 
yet anyway, but I'd be really interested to see Dilly Bishiru at some point play one of those deeper roles, see what he can bring, albeit he's had a, a poor track record of giving away goals so far, but um, I think he could add something different there at least. But it, it's going to be really interesting to see with more options what solutions Pano can, can come up with there. One of um, the interesting things you just mentioned is how um, Lauren or Reno used to drop it into left back. And it felt like that was partly to allow the left back to push on and, and, and therefore give defensive cover and partly as a way of progressing the ball, obviously just, just getting uh, another body there. Um, We're not doing that, as you say, and, and Jack, you've done quite a good video about this. Um, or a very good video about this, to be fair. Um, it was under a, a five-at-the-back system um, at Stoke that you did the video, so it's a bit different now that we're playing four at the back. But we do seem to be very open down that left side. Um, and I was just wondering, Jack, like, uh, what do you think has happened? Because I, I don't remember it last year with Omar Richards. Um, I'm not sure if it's just because he is speedy Gonzalez and can get up and down the pitch. Um, but yeah, what, what has changed there, Jack? I think it's uh, there's a few things so so the particular um video that i had a look at was at, at stoke um when we sort of tried to shift quite a bit between a three at the back with mcintyre laura morrison and then a five at the back with bristow and yeardham uh, dropping in um and i think it was quite clear that stoke had zero intention of attacking down our right hand side at any point um and sort of the transition between that five and three at the back created lots of pockets of space where either McIntyre had shifted centrally too soon and Bristow hadn't had the, the chance to drop or the other way around. Um, and it just meant that there was a big pocket of space behind where Bristow was, um, but the side of where the, the left centre-back and McIntyre was, where players were finding a lot of joy of being able to stay on side get in behind the the wing back and and deliver crosses um i think that game we conceded uh more accurate crosses than we had at any point um bar two games in the season before um this season stopping crosses has been a bit of an issue for us and against huddersfield it was also pretty clear um albeit a bit more on the the right hand side but to an extent on both um where there are a number of instances in the first 10 minutes, I think there were three instances of the left wingers of um, Toffolo at, at, at left wing back for them and Corona helping him out on the, the left side, getting into positions where they could isolate Tom Holmes and get one-on-one -on -one and either put crosses in um, or get in behind to, to, to run into the box and, and drag back for, for a few um, shots that arguably they should have done, done better with. Um, I think part of the issue is last season when the double pivot was very effective at filtering people out wide. Um, it, it, whether it was on the left-hand side with Laurent or the right-hand side with Umamoto, they would then also double team effectively with the full-back sometimes, the um, person in a position to cross. And you also had Ajari on the left, um, typically also getting back to, to help out as well. I think he's been a big miss defensively too. This season, it seems like there's been a lot less of that because they haven't been in those same defensive positions. We saw a lot against Huddersfield of Rinomota having to tear across the pitch because he wasn't in that position to help pin the winger against the, the, the touchline and make them cross from more difficult positions. Um, and I think that's meant that we've been more open at the sides and we've not had the best or necessarily our best 
fullbacks in those positions, either because we lost them uh, or because they've been out injured. Um, and I think their vulnerabilities have been exposed a little bit. And that means that when Yearden slips over, for example, um, there isn't then the person from the double pivot, which on Saturday should have been Josh Laurent, um, to make up for those errors. So those errors sort of exacerbate even more um, and create goal scoring opportunities, as we found out in the first half, although with a couple of additional opportunities to get rid of the ball. Um, I think that's probably a large part of why we're in that position is just leaving our fullbacks too isolated because the pivot isn't necessarily getting across to help as it as it did last season very effectively. Uh, yeah, and Jordan, you've discussed this a few times, um, which is that, yes, the team had a very good season last year, but how much of that was down to just individual players having seasons of their lives? Um, and, and do we think that that, you know, that might be the case with some of these guys. I think it's I think it's a risk that it is, um, but maybe for like for different reasons even. So like um, we all have had and have really big hopes for Zhao this season, but um, I think it was it, it was never gonna. <laughs> it was very unlikely that he was going to be able to do what he did last season, and that was either because he wasn't going to be in as good form as last season. And we saw dips and, you know, stuff last season anyway, or he just wasn't going to be able to get out on the pitch as much. Like he had a season, like he's never had injury wise, you know what I mean? Like, um, so I think there is that, I think there is that risk. I think, um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot over the last, God, I don't know how many years about Moore and Morrison and that pair and the strengths and weaknesses of those two players. And they had really good seasons last year, right? Um, and they're not having very good seasons this year. And none of this stuff happens in in isolation. I think Jack's point about errors is, is really key. It's not like players didn't make errors last year. It's just that we were set up in a way where if one person made an error, another person could cover for them. Um, and that feels like it's happening less. And I don't think it's about fight. I just think it's about positioning. And, you know, we don't see anybody covering for each other and doing any of this stuff because there's nobody in the right place to, to do it. You know what I mean? Like, um, I think it's, I think my my take is that I think it's a bit too easy to throw some of the, the mentality stuff around a little bit. So I tend to avoid it. Um, but uh, I think... I think we're not we're not helping ourselves and not putting ourselves in the best position to play our best football or, or to play defensively solid football. Um, you know, one criticism of, of Pan I would have is that I would probably quite like to see him play a little bit more conservative. It doesn't really it kind of flies in the face of what we saw last season, which was overly conservative probably a lot of the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, there's always the risk, right? Especially with some of the age of some of the guys. Like, like I, I don't want to start writing um, Morrow's retirement papers or whatever. But um, there's there's always a risk. You know, you hear it from from you know former players that and I, I'm not saying this is. If you're listening, Michael, I'm not saying this is you. But they wake up one day and and they realise that they're getting bullied around by 17 year old you know, clerks in training and stuff, and they're thinking, maybe I shouldn't be doing this anymore. We've seen Morrison getting dominated by a couple of different centre-forwards this year. Good ones, 
but not amazing ones. You know what I mean? Like Fletcher. Um, so I think you can never track people's decline, particularly, you know, linear. Um, and we've had a lot of these players for quite a long time and we've seen them have pretty poor spells or even poor seasons over the period of time. So I think it's, we probably just got a bit too excited last year and thought, all right, this is how Moore plays now. This is how Reno plays now. This is how Lauren plays now versus this is these guys having good seasons. Maybe it's not always going to last. Um, so I, th- I think there is, there is a danger that, that we may be, got a bit too excited about the level of some of the guys that were having really solid seasons last year. Um, and the other major issue that we've had this season are set pieces. Um, I mean, if we really wanted someone to talk about this, we should have got Stephen on, uh, Cabin13 on Twitter, who does lengthy threads every week, uh, which you should should read. Um, Jack, do you have any particular thoughts on how bad we are <laughs> pretty bad um i think is, is is the answer there's a there's a bit of a question as to obviously people have been talking about zonal marking and whether it works or as i think is my preferred view is it worked well last season and we're not executing it particularly well this season a uh, part of the issue at times with zonal marking can be that it's quite hard to assign blame to an individual player which when a goal goes in, everybody wants to do, everyone wants to say, oh, it was that person's fault. I think some of the things I was having a a look at um, earlier today, 40% of corners that we have conceded have ended with a shot last season. That was about 30%. And that's quite high for any sort of crossing statistic. Um, From free kicks, similarly as well, another set piece issue for us. We've only conceded five shots, but three of them have wound up in the back of the net. And I think part of the issue is we seem to set up in a bit of a risky way um and that is fine when you're executing and when you're not executing that obviously leads to those sorts of figures huddersfield for example we've got a lot of defenders closer to the ball and the trajectory that it goes through and they've got a lot of attackers where if it goes past players they're going to have four people at the back post for the tapping um which was pretty much what happened um obviously the Bristol City game and there was sort of knock across um, but I think what we're it's, it's not a mental it's not a mentality issue but I think that sometimes we don't look entirely um, committed in our defense particularly of corners the way that we set up we're quite stationary until the ball has moved in and at the point that you've got attackers running into your zone they're going to be able to get a better jump if they are less stationary than you are um, and I think that's one of the, the issues, particularly against Stoke, um, when pretty much every corner ended in a, a very narrow miss. Um, I think uh, we, we have um, a lot of issues with. But the other issue that we've had is when we do clear it, it seems to be recycled straight again by the opposition. I think part of our issue this season has been that we've not been able to attain control of play. And we've had lots of periods of games where teams have had a corner, a free kick, we've headed it out, they've recycled it, they've put another ball into the box, we've got rid of it, they've got it again, and the cycle continues. And we don't necessarily seem to be able to break free of that um, at the minute, uh, which I think is a big issue for just keeping the pressure on ourselves. The more things we end up having to do, even if we execute it reasonably well, there's still going to be times when players make errors and 
if we have to make more decisions, we will make more errors and teams will score more goals. So we need to be able to find a way to sort of win those second balls and break out, um, which I think is going to be a big issue for us moving forward. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about zonal marking is our main time we do it is from corners and, and we... Stephen assures me we haven't actually conceded from a corner yet, which is interesting. Um, like the free kicks, I think it, and and especially both of those early set-piece goals at, uh, against Bristol, I think it is quite easy to attribute blame to an individual. And in both cases, it was because they weren't really marking well enough. So, you know, it is it, it swings both ways. Like zonal marking obviously is not the answer to everything, but neither is man marking. Um We'll make this the last question, Jordan. Um, a, a few weeks ago, after that horrible loss against Coventry, um, Callum came on the podcast and he mentioned that um, defending is a whole team uh, endeavour. And as Jack's just mentioned, like we're not able to retain the ball. Um, and I don't think that that is just from corners or set pieces. It seems to be, you know, more general. Um, what What is the solution to that? Get, get, like just easy one, fix our whole defensive problem. Yeah, okay, I'll give it a crack. Um, I think I think it's I think it's a good point that um, we've had far less, um, I would say, control in games. I think a lot of our control last year was maybe artificial. Feels like the wrong word, but um, there were plenty of games last year where opponents just conceded the ball to us and kind of knew that we wouldn't really do much with it. Right, that's almost a separate problem. I think teams now know that they don't even need to do that. They can press us pretty heavily and they know that we're going to drop it, right? Um, and I think it comes down to... These things tend to spiral, right? But I think I think one of the, the key things is that we're missing two... I think we're missing two of our best... Um, Oh, sorry, three, let's say three, because we've had Ovi missing the whole start of the season as well. Missing three of our best, you know, press-resistant, just ball-recycling players um, in Ovi Ajaria, Michael Lees and Omar Richards. You know, the job Omar Richards did in this team to, you know, it, it feels like even before he had a brilliant season last year, one of the hallmarks of Omar Richards is players just continually giving him really bad passes and him making something out of it, winning a foul, jinking away from somebody, you know, taking the touch and just knocking it on. You know, we have really, really struggled to not just get ourselves penned in and the entire back line, give it to each other and give it to Josh Laurent and back and forward and do it all again. Now, guys like Ovi and Michael Elise are the guys who you can give the ball to, you can trust them to take it, to look up and to play the ball off, usually forward or at least across the pitch. And when they're not doing that, they can carry it up the pitch. And that's another thing Omar Richards can do. So we are missing these guys that, that take the pressure off. They either win fouls or they bring the ball forward. Um, and when you have more of the ball, certainly when you have more of the ball that's not just in your own defensive third, it, you can you can get yourself more settled. You're not constantly facing the, the, the barrage of, of you know, crosses and, and aerial threats that, that Jack just mentioned. Um, and, um, you know, so we need to find a way of retaining the ball a bit better. We've only really got John Swift. And when John Swift does it, 
there's nobody else to pass to. He's looking up and there's nobody there, right? So I was pretty adamant at the start of the season. I wrote a piece about the recruitment I was hoping to see before we'd signed anybody. And one of the things that I was, I was pretty adamant about was that it wasn't worth trying to replace Michael Lees. You know, Michael Lees, pretty special player. I think we would have had a really tough time trying to replace him. In my mind, we didn't need to replace him at 10 because we had John Swift. Um, and I just wanted us to bring in wingers because I wanted that variety that we didn't have last season. I wanted guys, more guys who could actually run at people to put balls in, which we didn't have last year. Um, I've now changed my mind and I'm actually quite glad we've signed um, Helilovic, who to me, without having seen him play yet for us, to me is Pano's attempt to get some of what Elise brought us back into the team. Um, he didn't play right wing when he came on at the weekend, but we, we changed things up. So that's maybe not a huge surprise, but I would expect that he's going to play the majority of his football from the right-hand side. And I think he's probably going to do a similar job to Michael did, which is never stay on the right-hand side and basically drift across the pitch, picking the ball up. And the hopeful knock-on effect is that John Swift can spend more of his time close to Puskas. Puskas can spend more of his time running in behind. Um, Junior Hoylet can go in, and Balaraman can go give all the sort of width on our left-hand side. Um, and we can start stretching the pitch a little bit more and start moving the ball up the pitch in a more controlled manner than we currently do. Because Lucas Zhao on his day can hold up, you know, can hold off three guys and take the ball down. But one on his day, on, when he's not on his day, he can't do that. You know, I think people have... Um, a pretty idolised version of, of Lucas Jao in their head. And, you know, when he's off it, he's not holding the ball up any better than Puskas, I can tell you that. Um, we need to find a better way of moving the ball up the pitch. And I'm hopeful that Helilovic can give us some of what Michael gave us last year. Um, we've got to find some way of, of doing it because the defence can't have as much pressure as it's under every game and us keep clean sheets. It's not going to happen. Well, it hasn't happened so far. Um, yeah, so in this podcast, Jordan, you've guaranteed eight goals for Puskas. You've retired yep. Michael Morrison. Yep. And now you're saying that Lucas Zhao is a poor man's George Puskas, which I'm sure will go down really well. Um, that's what you said. Uh, yep. Don't listen back too hard. Uh, so. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Find me on Twitter. Find me on Twitter. Call me out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's get some interaction with this podcast going. Um, I think we'll leave it there. Um, after the break, because I think we have breaks now, um, we'll be talking about the upcoming WSL season, which Reading kick off on Friday. Um, so thank you very much, Jack. Uh, thank you very much, Jordan. Um, let's hope that the next international break, we're talking about some uh, some some. Better I'm here with Ben Waite to talk through uh, the Reading women's team who are uh, starting their campaign on Friday night. How are you doing, Ben? Oh, all good, thank you. Looking forward to it. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks. Um, you know, the Reading women's team, they've been pretty exciting over the last few years, haven't they? Yeah, so it's been a it's been a gradual rise for them. Kelly Chambers has been there for a few years. She knows the club inside out and she's stabilised the team in the top tier of the women's football, uh, the women's super league. Um, they finished mid table for the last few seasons with a seventh place finish last year. 
And now they'll be hoping to improve that this campaign. Yeah, I mean, seventh sounds probably better than it actually is, given that there's only, you know, uh, 12 teams, 11 teams. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah here's 12. Uh, should have looked that out before we started, <laughs> but hey. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the lowest finish actually, in, well, in a while since since it became a winter league. Um, what went wrong for them last year? Because I think, I do think it was a slightly disappointing season, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was disappointing, but I wouldn't say the phrase that it went wrong. Um, it was a it was a huge, huge season for change. It was their first at the Medeski, so obviously the select car leasing now, but it was Medeski last year. Um, they had the move from Adams Park in Wickham, so the the atmosphere around the stadium just with, with it being a bigger venue was different. They had to adjust to that. Um, you obviously had no fans there, so they didn't have the backing. So with all of those factors combined, it would have been a tough season for them no matter what. Um, as it is in women's football, we have a lots of ins and outs each season. So it's about building the team, rebuilding each year, and ultimately with Reading, bringing through younger players as well. And this is something they do focus on in the women's game. Yeah, that's a, actually a really interesting point because last season they had the top um, English players capped player in Farrah Williams and the top Welsh capped player in uh, Jess Fishlock, who was only on loan, but um, was one of the better players, at least for Reading, um, maybe in the division. Um, well, at least in the division outside, you know, Arsenal and Man City and whatnot. Um, this season, they seem to have brought in a different profile of player who are a little bit younger, who uh, like they brought in a couple from Bristol City who went down. Um do you think that will suit them? Because they do play a kind of high-pressing, quite intense style. Yeah, I think in the women's game, it, it works perfectly that you have the mix. You have your big names like you do in the men's game, but you have those players that can bring something different that people don't expect. You'll have a season out of the blue. So with Reading last year, they operated without a right-back. So with Faye Bryson arriving from Bristol City, it's a natural position. So it helped the other players that are still there to play a bit further up where they're happier and more comfortable. Yeah. And, um, you know, who, who are some of your names to look out for in, in this Reading team? So from the new signings, they've brought in Natasha Dowie. She's an experienced striker. She's been capped by England. Um, she joined from Milan. And the problem with Reading last year is they created lots of chances, but they didn't have that experienced proven goal score up front to finish them off. So if she can get firing, that would be really good for them. Um, you've got Deanne Rose as well, Canadian international, Olympic champion. Um, she's arrived from the US college system. So that'll be an exciting one to watch. And then you've got your players from last season, your Welsh outfit, the, um, Natasha Harding, captain the team. Again, big experience. You've got Rachel Rowe, who was top goal scorer from midfield. So there's lots of positions on the pitch where if they can get combining together, it could be an exciting season for them. Yeah, I mean... Um... I think the fact that Wales played Canada in a friendly just before we end up signing a Canadian is probably not not a uh, coincidence. There is a large Welsh contingent in the side. And, uh, you know, there's been managers that have managed both Reading and Wales. And there seems to be quite a link there. Um, they, they do start with a quite... Well, it's difficult to know about Manchester United this year because their off-the-field issues are well-documented, maybe not to listeners of this podcast, but... They, they've had quite a lot go on. Um, but after that, they've got 
Arsenal as well, and then maybe Tottenham and Everton um, are more winnable games. Um, how do you see the start of the season going for them, Ben? Yeah, it, it's going to be a tough period, but it's going to be tough for every team. They're going to all be in the same boat of it's it's a new season with fans. You're going to have the pressures, new pressures, new environments, new players to play with. Um, it's going to be the same for everyone. Obviously, Man United away, live on Sky on Friday night, it's going to be a total different atmosphere to when they beat them last year. So, Reading, Reading were the only team to take three points away from Man United last season. So, they know how to play them. And as Kelly Chambers says in a lot of her interviews, Reading can beat anyone on any day. Arsenal will be very tough second game. Um, they will have to be up their utmost best to beat them. And then Tottenham and Everton were, they both drew 1-1 last year. Um, and it was those games where you, the chances were there, you just didn't take them. So I'm sure Kelly will be eyeing up to win those games this year. Yeah, I mean, the number of 1-1 draws last season was kind of unbelievable. I think uh, they lost 6-1 to Arsenal in their first game, but did draw 1-1 yeah. later on. So... As you say, it just kind of shows the changeable nature of this Reading team. Um, is there anyone who you think, you know, might... I know you've given some names, but is there any kind of players that might not have been in the four last season that we might see this? Um, it's hard with Reading. The pre-season is very secretive. Obviously, you've had the move to Bearwood. Um, it's the same with the men's when we were there. We didn't see much from Bearwood. So... They released their squad numbers today. It's a very small squad again on paper. Um, you'll have youngsters like Emma Harries. She had a breakthrough season last year. Um, Beth and Roberts as well made her debut. They're academy products from the Redden Academy and they'll be looking to push on further. Um, and and just give us an idea of where realistically this, this Redding team um, could finish because I mean, I think it's fair to say that they are not a Manchester City or a Chelsea, um, but they probably are one of the more established sides. Yeah, so you've got your teams that have the money to invest. Yeah, Arsenal, Man City, Man United, Chelsea. They're going to be your top four. So, And then between those positions, fifth, sixth, seventh, if you can finish comfortably in one of those, you really should be challenging for fifth. Um, but and then a result on your day could go your way and suddenly you could be fourth. So... I think between anywhere between fourth and seventh will be a good result at the end of the season. And as you say, like they're playing matches at the Medeski Stadium, oh, select car leasing stadium this year. Um, yeah, I know it's uh, it's terrible. All the signs still say Medeski. It's not exactly it's not right. Um, and uh, you know there were uh, even in that kind of part last year where we could go, there was like a not terrible crowd. So. So it'd be nice just to see people get down there and maybe maybe back the back the team. Yeah, it's a totally different atmosphere at the game as well. It's a more community feel. Um, there's relationships built between players and fans. You have your regulars that go. It's a very yeah, it's a very family orientated um, experience when going to the women's game. So it will be great to see as many fans as they can, especially with them playing back in Reading now. Yeah, it's not quite you know, why 26 in, at its most ferocious, is it? But I think it is, as you say, more family-oriented. It's it's quite a good fun time as well. Like, I think there'll be some people listening to this saying, like, our oh, women's football is terrible. And you have to be realistic. It's not the same level as, as men's football. But it's also 
it's quite good. It's quite enjoyable yeah. to go watch, don't you think? Exactly, especially with sometimes how the men perform. You could have, say you had that big defeat at Huddersfield. If you come on the Sunday, you could see a women's team actually fighting and giving you a performance that to be proud of. Um, Jess Fishlock last season had a great quote where she said at the end of her interview that it's coming, women's football's growing, so you might as well back it now. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you've just said there, I do not remember a time where I've come away from watching a women's uh, Reading women's game thinking like that these aren't trying, like these players aren't trying. Like they always do put in 100% effort. And, you know, uh, there'll be more people saying that, you know, that's the least you should expect. But I think I think there is uh, positive signs for Reading nonetheless. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's all about moving forward. It comes back to that, that, it's the era now of this is the time for women's football. Sky have got the deal. They're ready to invest in it. They're ready to invest their time and effort into the game. Um, you see it with clubs sharing training grounds, sharing stadiums. Now is the time. So like Fishlock said, you might as well back it and show your support. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a really good place to leave it, Ben. Uh, hopefully... <laughs> They have a good season. Um, I'm sure we'll try and talk about them uh, a bit more on the podcast. Um, one thing I would like to see is Frank Kirby maybe being injured. No, no, that's way too harsh. That's way too harsh. Frank Kirby just having a poorer game against Reading because, oh my God, she's so good. I mean, it's still nice because Reading, Reading product, but yeah, I wish I wish she kind of kept it in the bag for for the Reading games, you know, rather than go true. all out. Uh, anyway thanks very much ben um no that's been our podcast this week for the international break um we'll see you again with whoever the men's team are playing afterwards i've, QPR. I've tried is it qpr qpr i've tried to switch off to be honest mate like it's not been a good 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 initial no. start has it uh not i'm hoping see. yeah let's hope the qpr game is better fingers crossed